All the work that you put in, amazing piano solo this morning, it was very worshipful. Thank you so much. And all of you who prepare music for us to worship by, we are, we're so grateful, we're so indebted. And I want to express my gratitude to Joey for the privilege of being able to preach this morning and to Parker for the privilege of, of being able to serve alongside these dear, dear men. And a wonderful privilege that Dina and I have had to be among you now for Oh, going on six months now, and it's been a great delight for us. We've come to know you a bit and to uh, be embraced by you. We're so deeply appreciative for the experience, and we, we bring you our gratitude, our love. Well, this, uh, this morning I have the privilege of walking you through a rather small passage, a, a single account in the Gospel of Mark. So would you take your Bible, if you have one, and open to Mark chapter 14. By the time you get to Mark 14, we're coming up to the crucifixion account that Mark gives us. Today we look at the next to last supper, supper at Simon's home. You ever have an event in your life that was meant to be dignified, only to turn ugly? When my mother's mother passed away at the age of about 100, uh, the, the funeral and the committal service that was supposed to be dignified turned into a farce uh, due to the, the funny things that were going on among her children, who by now were quite well-aged, but they had their differences among them. And uh, as a result, that which was meant to be dignified turned out to be awkward and, and strange. We find a situation like that Today, a situation that is meant to be dignified and, and becomes awkward. So if you kind of have a sense of irony in your heart that kind of enjoys those kind of things, I think you might enjoy this passage together. Let's look beginning in verse 3. Let me read that for you then. <clears throat> While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table... There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and she poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, whatever this woman has done will also be spoken of her. What a dinner. Love, rebuke, praise, all going on at the same time. Sounds like some of my family dinners growing up. Meals are an important event in the gospels. You can actually, people have done this. They, they trace out the different meals of the Lord in order to show the contextualization of that day, what culture was like and how Jesus was a part of it. I like to call this the next to last supper 
In a mere five, six evenings, they're going to have the actual Last Supper. This is the next to Last Supper here at the home of, of Simon. And it's one that I think we can relate to just on a, on a personal level. And then there are elements of it that are simply meant to instruct us on how we are to love the Lord. Now, we can be greatly benefited on how to love the Lord by the example of other people. It really can help us. At the same time, the example of other people can really teach us how not to love the Lord. Both of that is in this passage. But in this passage, we are really, really taught the right way to love the Lord and to be just the kind of people who love the Lord out of gratitude rather than debt, but just out of gratitude rather than guilt. Now, let me kind of sketch out some of the background here. At the beginning in verse 3, talks about while they were in Bethany, that actually places this passage in terms of time prior to Mark chapter 13 and the first couple of verses of chapter 14. Because this happens prior to the week of passion, the passion week. The fact that he is in Bethany tells us that. If you haven't been to Israel, Bethany is a a 30-minute, 45-minute walk up over the hill, down on the other side into a small little hamlet called Bethany. Um, And it's really nothing remarkable necessarily. Uh, There's no great feature about it. Just a town, but a town where some very important people in the Scripture live. And it's close enough to Jerusalem that the spies who have been sent out to find Jesus would have been able to see him there and and the disciples if they had been around. Not that many people would have lived out there. And at this time, there was a movement afoot in order to arrest Jesus and his disciples and to bring them in, throw them in jail. According to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So this is a Saturday night. Sabbath is ended. The spies are afoot at the order of the chief priests, looking around to try to find Jesus. Where is Jesus on the evening after a Sabbath? Why, he is at a leper's home. Look back at verse 3 again. Do you see it there? At the home of Simon the leper. Why would Jesus be at a leper's home? Because he was an ex-leper. Jesus had healed him. Jesus could not have gone into a leper's home according to Levitical law and then been able to offer himself as a sacrifice in only a few days hence. So thanks to Jesus, this man is an ex-leper and with all the spies out after Sabbath, nobody would risk contamination by going into a leper's house with Passover holidays coming up. The possible leprous contamination required weeks of isolation And anybody who might have even touched his house could have possibly been infected not knowing that he had been healed or not believing that Jesus had healed him and therefore would have been ineligible for all the Passover holidays coming up. Now in all likelihood, Simon lived in a very small home. 
Back in that day, if you aren't familiar, lepers didn't have much. They were commanded to kind of stay away from society, but the typical way that a leper made his money was to go into the city, hold out a cup while people walked by and plead for mercy. And if somebody had mercy, often out of mere religious duty, they would put some money in the cup, and that is what the leper would live by. So he was a beggar, very much a beggar in that culture. So here we have Simon the leper in a house. Well, he had been healed, so now he could live back among people. Whether the house came to him, maybe from his family, or whether he had saved his money, who knows how, but he has a house, but almost certainly a really small house, the house of a very poor person. And this is where Jesus is going to go. Such a house would have had one small room, most likely for cooking, for sleeping, for reclining, maybe something of a sheet hung up or a half wall in order to allow for a second room for maybe the animal to stay in at night. And so you have then a small, confined environment. Maybe there's a rug on the floor. If so, that was an extravagance. Most people like that would have had a dirt floor, dirt walls. Weren't able to do too much interior decorating with that kind of thing. It's evening. We can assume that there's one, two, or three of those small little lamps that they light, the kind that you just hold in your hand and have a small flickering light coming out of it. It isn't bright inside. And you look at verse 3, and you see that all the men are reclining. I love how my version says reclining at the table. And then it puts the words at the table in italics to let you know that there was no table. They were just reclining. They were probably scrunched into each other. Everybody rubbing after a, after a day of being with each other. And it was probably smelled like a group of men in the home. Small area. Now, according to Middle Eastern custom, the the host of the home was obligated, if he didn't have any servants to do it, and Simon the leper, unlikely that he had a servant, would have been responsible to clean the men's hands and feet in order to wash off the grime and to express in a tactile way You're welcome into my home. It's an honor for me to have you in my home. Thank you so much for coming. Please allow me to wash your hands, wash your feet. Now you come in and make yourself comfortable. I'm here at your disposal. Thank you so much for coming. That's the way you would do it with guests. Now the fact that he would have Jesus of Nazareth coming to his house after an extensive and popular three-year ministry is an honor unspeakable. By this time in the life of Jesus Christ, he has now spent the better part of three years teaching, training, and healing. His ministry throughout the land of Israel has been something written for the ages. There has been healings of entire town. There have been men raised from the dead, most recently Lazarus, just a few doors up. There have been amazing occurrences of teachings. There's been rebukes of the religious system. There have been event after event going on from the land of Nazareth, through Galilee, all the way down from the land to the land of Jerusalem and Judea, marking out that God's king has come. Demons have been cast out. It probably would have been by this time, at the end of three years, almost impossible to have found a demon in the land. So thoroughly had they been cast out. 
So thoroughly had they been purged. So successful and so powerful was the kingdom ministry of Jesus Christ and his disciples that the success of it had set off alarm bells in the religious authorities to such an extent that their desire was singular, arrest the man and kill him. But the man was imminently popular. And tomorrow morning from this event, he will mount on a donkey and ride down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and there will be a hundred thousand or more people praising him. There early for the festival of the Passover, they will lay out their palm branches as an offering and homage to Israel's coming king. The honor to have this man in your home is a once in a lifetime event for anyone and for a leper a once-in-eternity event. Wonderful, glorious, in a small environment. You have Jesus, his 12 apostles. You have the host, Simon. We know from the Gospel of John that not only were these men there, but so were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead just a few days before. And they're all in the house in a wonderful event, honoring the Lord and having a meal together, recognizing the wonderful, powerful kingdom healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And right there, when everything is going oh so well at the exact wrong moment, Mary sins in front of everybody. At least that's what everybody thought. According to verse 3, she pours perfume on Jesus' head. And her dreadful sin is swiftly exposed. Oh, thank you so much. In verse 4, why has this perfume been wasted? You ever notice how wise other people are with your giving? (laughs) How much you should give? How you should do it? What a harsh word at the end of verse 4. Wasted. So, Mary, we find out it's Mary in the Gospel of John. She's so humiliated. Fourteen men there. Jesus, humiliated in front of them. And that comment, we found out it, it was made by some of them, was particularly aimed in such a way as to crush her, to crush her spirit. What had she done that was so wrong? Why did they react so strongly? Well, she had destroyed wealth. By doing so, she had denied comfort to the poor. The word for waste is the word in the New Testament for destruction. So really, if we were to translate it that way, what they said to her was, why has this perfume been destroyed? She had destroyed wealth in a way that we as Americans find difficult to understand. In that culture, if you had something of a lot of value that other people didn't have, like poor people, then you were responsible to take the valuable stuff if you weren't going to you know, use it yourself to go sell it, take the money, 
and give some of it or all of it to the poor. If you do that, that gains you honor in that culture. See, we're very different. To us as Americans, we have this ingrained belief that there is an unlimited amount of wealth out there for everybody to get. Everybody can be a millionaire if they only want to. Who wants to be a millionaire is the TV show. Anybody can be a millionaire if you just apply the right kind of principles, if you just take this wonderful real estate course that's on at 3.30 in the morning on TV. Everybody can be a millionaire, right? That's, there's just an unlimited amount of wealth. Our politicians tell us that. You know, the rising ocean lifts all ships kind of economics. and All of, all of the idea that we believe that there's an infinite amount of wealth to be had in this world, enough for everybody to be wealthy. But in much of the world, they don't believe that way. And certainly not in this culture. In the Middle East, it's an ancient belief firmly held among the culture and other places as well that there is only a finite amount of wealth in the world. And if you have a lot, that hinders me from getting a lot because maybe you have some of mine. I can't get at it. You've got it. So I have less opportunity to become rich because you have wealth. So managing wealth for a wealthy person Managing it rightly was not just a personal matter like it is in our country. It was a community matter. What you did with your wealth was important. And other people were therefore allowed to weigh in on how you used your wealth. So, it's very obvious to some of these men that Mary has sinned. No, this wealth wasn't just wasted. This Wealth was destroyed. And so at the end of verse 5, it says they were scolding her. The tense of the verb means they were doing it over and over and over again. To grind her down, to crush her, humiliate her. The NIV gives the translation of serious anger. And they rebuked her harshly. You ever think Thanksgivings get weird at your house? <laughs> You're in the, between the turkey and the potatoes and someone mentions Uncle Harry and the whole scenario goes crazy because Uncle Harry is the guy you don't talk about. This is just strange. It's such a nice environment. And now this woman has destroyed wealth. How awful is the matter? Nice meal. Simon is honoring Jesus. Simon is honoring the apostles. No doubt in his heart he thinks these are just the world's finest men. Jesus' chosen men. And they're scoundrels. They're really pretty wretched here. Mary's honoring Jesus. These men are horrible guests. Horrible. Thanks a lot, Simon. <laughs> Sanctimonious. Holier than thou. <laughs> Absolutely insensitive to Jesus. Hmm. What is it about us that makes us judge fellow believers lightning fast? 
and so harshly. Why can't we ask before we judge them, was this done to honor Jesus? Why do we have to judge people by all sorts of false standards? Homeschooling versus public schooling versus private schools versus private Christian schools. What child, what college does your child go to? Oh. What church do you go to? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it true that everybody and everything connected to Christianity is up for our judgment? Oh, they're with that missions organization. You know, unless a person is a heretic or unless they're with an organization that just denies the central truths of Christ and salvation or they're just blatantly violating scripture, none of us can make a judgment as to how anyone in those churches or in that ministry or by what they do is what how are they doing? How does Christ himself receive it? None of us can make that decision. None of us can make that judgment. Oh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The believers of the church there were having a field day judging him. You might know the passage, but let me just kind of bounce it off you here. Paul says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. He's talking about passing judgment on himself before the time. That's when the Lord comes. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And, and then you know what he's going to say. Oh, once, once that day comes and God is going to disclose the motives of men's hearts, then he's going to crush them. He's going to punish them. But the text goes different. Listen. That he will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Kind of like what happens to Mary here in this passage. And then he goes on. He says, These things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. In Corinth there, they had the Apollos faction and the Paul faction and the Cephas faction and the Christ faction. They all decided, based on their own obvious God-given prerogatives to judge everyone and everything, as to who was good, who was valid, who was bad, who was kind of sat on the bench while the, who was the A-team that played out in the field. We all do that, don't we? But nobody gave us that power. Nobody gave us that authority. You know, none of us knows how it is that Christ receives honor to himself. And he hides it in himself. So that none of us are actually in a position to judge how someone's ministry is applied or received by Christ himself. And that for us who are in ministry, that totally removes anything to do with comparison. There, there's, there's no way to know who is the great and who is the smalls. The, 
the measures on earth are not valid measures. We certainly see that in this passage. Am I right? Are we judges without a calling to do it? All right. Let's go back to the house then of Simon the leper, the small house. We're leaving it here. The perfume has been poured out. There's this wonderful musky scent of perfume that's both sweet and complex wafting through the air. It's intense, but now the house is not only filled with the perfume, it's filled with tension. And now Jesus gets involved and he relaxes all the tension by elevating Mary, listen, above his own disciples. And there are three praises from the Lord here in this passage that show Mary held spiritual secrets deeper than she held disappointment. Mary had spiritual secrets that were deeper to her than the disappointments that she received. We'll walk through three of those and then wrap it up quickly. Okay, the first praise from the Lord is this. Her spiritual secret was understanding Jesus. Her spiritual secret was understanding Jesus. Would you please look with me at verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. I need to make a fine point here for you to understand what Jesus is saying. I want you to look at the last two words of verse 6, the words, to me. Literally, those words are, in me. Now, Jesus is not praising her here for the perfume by saying only that what you have done in reference to me, the pouring out the perfume, no. He's not saying to her, you understand the priorities of my ministry. No. Literally, what Jesus says is, you have worked a good work in me. She has worked a good work in me, inside Jesus. Inside him, where his full humanity and his full deity commune in glory with each other. Inside him. He is saying that based on what she did, he is inwardly comforted. He is inwardly made happy. He is inwardly brought joy. He is inwardly blessed. How many times has that happened during his three-year ministry? Not too often. I mean, normally Jesus is a man of sorrows. And Jesus is sorrowful about what's about to happen six days from now when he's going to go on a cross. And realize it, beloved, the pressure on him, on his soul, is building and building and building. The day is coming soon for him to go to the cross. And he knows what it's going to be. And he, she, Mary, is the only person in that room who understands what's going on inside him the pressure that he's feeling, the thoughts he's thinking. Only her. So listen, she wasn't committed primarily to his cause, to the Christian cause. She was primarily committed to him. What would be meaningful 
to him. And that's so much easier to think about than what would be more, most meaningful for the church or for the Christian religion. What would be most meaningful to him? Now, as it's been pointed out many times, Jesus commends here helping the poor. He does say, after all, in verse 7, whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But alleviating the ministry of the poor is not the primary mission of our church. We take care of the poor among us, but that is not our primary mission. Our mission, above all, is to make sincere worshipers for Christ. People with a spiritual secret like Mary, who do what they do for Christ out of a spiritual secret. So that even with disappointment going on all around, yet they say to themselves and before the Lord, what can I do for you? I like using the word secret because it takes you down inside your own personal heart to where you think, meditate with all of your individuality. That's the secret. Doing what I do for him. All for Christ and only for Christ. That should be our motto. But having done so, you will likely receive criticism from some segment of Jesus' followers. And it's interesting in this passage that there's no words recorded of Mary defending herself. I don't think it's that... She wasn't inwardly upset. I think she was inwardly upset. And I don't think it's necessarily true that she didn't know how to answer back and how to retaliate. I think most people do. Don't you? But at the same time, she must have been debating. This was for him. This was for him. This wasn't for you to judge. So Mary doesn't defend herself, but she does have her secret told to everybody else. She did what she did because she understood Jesus. She understood what he was about to do. So look down in your own heart. Look at yourself. Don't do devotion to Christ to receive praise from men. I'll tell you why you don't want to do devotion to Christ to receive praise from men, because you will probably receive it. And then when you do, you'll get severely misguided because it will be very hard for you to simply have a devotion singularly unto him. We are actually more blessed when we do what we do for Christ and men come and criticize us because it tests our heart to prove to us that the reason I did what I did was to honor and please my Lord Jesus Christ. And how sweet that is. So do all your devotion for Christ and unto Christ alone. Hold a spiritual secret in your heart. And when men come along and they disappoint you, let that be for you an affirmation like it was for Mary, that you probably were doing exactly right. Well, that's her first praise from the Lord. Her spiritual secret was understanding Jesus. The second praise is this. Her spiritual motivation was faith. Her spiritual motivation was faith. Verse 8, Jesus goes on, she has done what she could, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Wow, burial. Of all the people in the house, it appears only she believed Jesus' words about his coming death. If you are a reader of these gospel accounts, 
You know, over and over again, Jesus would foretell his followers, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I go there, I'm going to be arrested. They're going to execute me. And three days later, I'll arise from the dead. Then a little while later in the gospel, we are going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be executed, and I'm going to rise from the dead. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, that account. And Mary did the remarkable. She simply took Jesus at his literal words. Not Peter, not John, certainly not Thomas, definitely not Judas, Probably not even her sister, Martha. She was probably busy scurrying about in Simon's home, figuring out what she could do. Busy, busy, busy. But in secret, Mary had believed what she had heard from Jesus. She just believed Jesus. She didn't need fireworks to believe Jesus. She didn't need confirmatory signs to believe Jesus. She wasn't basing her faith on inner feelings as to whether Jesus was going to die. No, she simply believed his words. He said he was going to go to Jerusalem and there he would be executed. She's the only one who believes Jesus. Do I think she understands the sin-atoning death? No, I don't think she understands that, but she believes what she's heard. That's pretty remarkable. And so she lives out her faith in this passage. She anoints his body with perfume that you normally would use to anoint a person whose body is dead. You don't anoint them before they die, you anoint them after they die to ward off the decay and the odor. Remember afterward, Jesus died, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come along and they lay it pounds and pounds of spice and aloes and myrrh on Jesus' body after the crucifixion. Now, Mary would have had to overcome the thought. If I do this to Jesus' body, will he be offended with me? After all, if somebody came along to you and they poured burial oil on you while you're still alive, would you take it as a compliment? Not normally. But this was so intensely personal to our Lord You see, he wanted the death by crucifixion. He had lived his whole life for this time. He had aimed at it. He had prayed at it. He had taught it. He had explained it. It's why he came. And everybody else had told him, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Mary had faith in Christ. She knew that he spoke what was true without duplicity. Just take what he says. The best faith in Christ is the faith that rests on his word. He is so trustworthy. He is so humble. He is so sinlessly pure. He is so kind. He is so loving. He is so merciful. He is so true. He is a savior. He is a judge. He is omnipotent. He is holy. He has known fellowship with the Father for all eternity. You can go on and on talking about the great Christ, but it really doesn't make a difference if you don't have faith in his words. Jesus said, He who hears my words and believes on him who sent me has passed out of judgment. 
He said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He said, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said, through John, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Her spiritual motivation was faith. She just took Jesus' words at face value. So let's test it out for ourselves. We go to the third praise, the third and final praise of Jesus. Not only was her spiritual motivation faith, but third, her spiritual legacy is sacrifice. Look at verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now is that true? Wherever this gospel is preached in the world, that would mean preached and accepted, not simply blasting it over a satellite dish. But where it's preached, so it's understood, wherever it's preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Is that true? How could Jesus know that? It's six days before his death. How can he know that the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world? These guys aren't even allowing Mary to anoint him with oil. They're not even sensitive to him. How are they going to be sensitive enough to him to take the gospel to the whole world? So is that really true? Verse 9. Well, if you have Mary's spiritual secret and her spiritual motivation is faith, you simply look at verse 9 and you just take it for verse for face value. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Okay. Subtle. You see how quickly and how easily it really is? And by the way, this little account here is in three of the four Gospels. So wherever the Gospels go, the story of Mary's anointing of the Lord goes with it. But faith is so simple. It's so straightforward. It's taking the Lord at his word. We don't need ten different rabbis to tell us what Jesus meant here. In verse 9, I'm just telling you, Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Now, I, I bring out that illustration there because it's not hard for you and I to believe. At least I hope it's not. But some things are. The ones that touch us morally. The ones that touch us ethically. The ones that call us to be a godly husband. The ones that, that call us to be a godly wife. The ones that, that tell us how to treat people at work or how not to live in a pity party every day, emotionally, and in a conversation with yourself that's a constant, ongoing bemoaning of the life that you have. There's no faith in that. You can have faith, can't you, in verse 9? Yeah, wherever the gospel's preached, what Mary said. But what about, what about the verses of Scripture where Jesus teaches how to think, how to believe, how to act. Oh, I'm just telling you, simple faith, straightforward, Mary-like faith takes those verses the same way that these verses are taken. It's just walking by faith. Now let's take a look at what Jesus says. It is, of course, is it not an astounding statement that wherever the gospel is preached in the world, the sacrifice of pouring expensive perfume will be told. And you know what? Here we are this morning, 2,000 years later, it's being told again. 
And, and what she did is not to be explained as excessive devotion to Christ because we find out in this passage there is no such thing as excessive devotion to Christ. Just appropriate sacrifice. What is an appropriate sacrifice for you and the Lord? No one can tell you that. That's your spiritual secret with you and the Lord alone. No one can tell you. That's between you and the Lord. It, it might be just, just, just relating in a loving way to that husband. Really. Might not have uh, alabaster vial of perfume to pour, you know. Uh, you may not have uh, piles and piles of money to give. It, it might just be um, loving that wife who just demands that everything go her way, and when something doesn't go her way, it's like pressure building on a pressure cooker. It's only a matter of time till it comes out. Or, ladies, you know what this afternoon is going to be like. He's going to be in front of the TV demanding that his life be the way he wants it to be because he's under so much pressure, and he thinks about himself all the time, and he really doesn't think about you. You know that. I don't know what your spiritual secret is. I don't know what your sacrifice is, but I can tell you this. There is no such thing as excessive devotion to Jesus Christ. And that ought to be comforting to us. So, here we are told in verse 3 what Mary's sacrifice was. Do you see it there in verse 3? Mark mentions it was an alabaster vial. That was an exquisite, handcrafted, all-white cruise made of stalactites and stalagmites from special caves where they drip, drip, drip very slowly and they form this very hard, hard water type of a formula with calcium. An alabaster vial was so hard that this special perfume could not permeate into the walls of the container, this alabaster vial, and so mix and thereby bring any impurities into it. So it was very specially made that way. And it was made in such a way that it had a very long, thin neck, five to nine inches long, so thin that only one drop of the precious insides could come out at a time. Oh, heaven forbid, with something so expensive, you should just by accident, you know, tip it over. Ah! And it's explained in verse 3 that it is made of pure nard. That means it would have no other plant oils in it, no other animal oils in it. It was made of pure nard. These kind of plants were imported from either the Himalayas or Nepal. And according to John chapter 12, verse 3, it held a pint of this perfume in it. And it is exceedingly costly, we are told here, oh, where is it? Verse 5, that it was over 300 denarii in value. I like how they were able to figure that out so fast, but they were no doubt correct. 300 denarii is 16 months wages for a man. Figure in Connecticut, oh, about $100,000 worth of value. 16 months. Needless to say, Mary was not a poor woman. To own nard perfume, which is a luxury in any age, means that they were well off. In fact, it would mean that they were rich. I don't know what their business was, but living outside of Jerusalem, they no doubt made their money in some way off of the business that could be made over the hill. So she's rich. 
They're well off, and I want you to notice in the context that neither her brother nor her sister, any word is mentioned, whether you're in the Gospel of Matthew, whether you're in the Gospel of Mark, whether you're in the Gospel of John. In all the stories, neither Mary nor Lazarus say a single boo. Let it go on. Kind of great. They were not opposed to it whatsoever. Can you imagine Lazarus being opposed to it? Oh, what do you do for me this week? You raised me from the dead last week, but come on, today's a different week. Now, her sacrifice is very personal to the Lord. Mark mentions in verse 3, at the end of it, she broke the vial. Think of that long, thin neck. She grabs it in her two hands and she goes, and by doing so, breaks the value of this valuable alabaster jar to be destroyed forever, can never be refixed, fixed, or replaced. And then now that it's opened, she can now pour out the perfume. And she pours it out. According to the Gospel of Mark, she starts at Jesus' head. And she's anointing his head, that head that in a few days' time will be crowned with thorns. And according to the Gospel of John, she continues right down his body and she finishes at his feet. The same feet that in a few days' time will have a spike pierced right through them. And by the time she's done, the whole pint has been poured out. And the pungency of the smell is throughout the area. And she's done and she's finished. And she finishes at his feet, at the place of humility, so that she's not center stage, but Jesus is in all of his incarnate glory that she could honor at that moment. By doing so, she could never repeat the action. It was a one-time opportunity. And Jesus says she's done it to prepare me for my burial. This was to inwardly prepare me. The, the perfume didn't stay for another six days. It was to inwardly prepare me that there is a love from these people, that there is a secret between myself and my people of love and affection and kindness and intimacy, that people can understand me, that they can be sympathetic to me, that they can offer obedience and worship unto me and unto me directly. Mary teaches us how to love the Lord. Just to let him know, Jesus, the coming cross is worth it. So worth it. So Mary held these spiritual secrets within her. And they were deeper than she would have held the disappointments of life. From people, from events, from personal shortcomings. She honored Jesus. She was motivated by faith, taking him at his word. And the spiritual legacy that we have from her is one of personal sacrifice. All Christians are called to such personal sacrifice to Jesus alone. Don't get dissuaded. Don't give it to men. Don't give it to those fleshly wretches. Give it to Jesus. 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 Let's pray. Lord, it's a remarkable thing what you call us to. You're so worthy. To be a Christian is such a call, such a call. Oh, how we bless and glorify your great and good name. And now we just humbly before you, each of us individually. How can we show sacrifice to you, dearest one, personally? Not concerned about the other. 
It doesn't matter what men have done to us. It doesn't matter how life has gone, what and how can I serve you? You. You. God. We love you in your name. Amen.